0: Over the last month, um, we've been going through a series, and this is the final part of this series at our church, and the series is called Growing Up. This beautifully portrayed graphic tells us that it's a series on sanctification. If you are here last week, Pastor Chris kind of roasted me on this series. It was crazy because I ran this by him, too. That's messed up, but he's not here this week, so I'm doing whatever I want. I'm preaching in sneakers. I'm roasting Anyways. If you don't know, Pastor Chris is not here because he's uh, paying a visit to our sister church in Alaska. So, Pastor Chris, um, we hope uh, you leading out worship there is going well. We're praying for you and your family. You can bless them over there as well. But um, this series is on sanctification. And just to use kind of layman's terms, sanctification is kind of a fancier theological term that at its core basically just means becoming more like Jesus. And kind of the, the prompt that we have is that sanctification is expected... But it's not always experienced, meaning that the Bible and the way Jesus teaches expects a certain level of growth and change to happen because of our faith in Jesus. But it's not always um, experienced ourselves. And kind of the question that we've been poking at and really that this final part of this series seeks to answer is, why haven't we changed? For some of us, for many of us, I would argue, for most people listening to this message, you grew up in the church You were raised being taught the stories of Jesus. Many of you were baptized in your pre-teens, or maybe in your teens, you are baptized in junior high. And so you're going on decades of having believed in God. But maybe you look back over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and the question you ask yourself is, why have I not grown? Why have I not become more like Jesus relative to how long I've believed in Jesus and been a Christian in my life, And last week we talked about how Jesus' method of sanctification was discipleship. The way he taught his disciples, he did life with them. And he asked them, hey, leave your life behind and come follow me. Leave your tax collector's booth, leave your fishing nets, and come join me full time. Do life with me. And last week, Pastor Chris defined discipleship as one follower showing another follower how they follow. And that being said, the question that he raised last week was... Okay, that's awesome. The initiative he set for the church was we should should disciple each other and people that are called to be disciples should disciple people that are called to be disciples of others should take on that role and we can grow together as a church. And that's awesome and it makes a lot of sense from a human to human connection. But the question is, how does one become discipled by Jesus, a non-physical person that is not here with us today? And that question, I think, evokes a much deeper question. But before we go into that, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, as we just sang, Lord, the the words of the praise team are the words of our prayer today, Father. Here we are to worship, to say that you are our God. You are altogether lovely and wonderful, Lord, and we are humbled to be before you today, Lord. We praise you for the gift of the Sabbath that you've given us, Lord, that we can pause and rest and remember who you are and be in your presence here today, Lord. Father, I ask that as I speak these words, these not be mine, but yours and yours alone. And that for anyone here with ears, that we can hear, Father, Lord, and we can understand the words you are trying to tell us here today. May your will be done in rock fellowship as it is in heaven. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with the question. And I know we're not the kind of church where like, I ask a question and people will like, actually say stuff back to me. So just humor me and just answer this question in your heads. The question is, What would you say is the most important verse in the Bible? If you had a friend that asked you about the Bible and was like, listen, it's a really, really long book, just give me one, like, snippet, like, what is the most important thing I need to know? What verse would you tell them? And again, keeping in mind that, you know, this may be someone that's not super familiar with the Bible, what's the singular verse that, again, it's just one, and there's a lot of nuance, and there's more to these, but if you had to pick one specific verse... To tell someone about, okay, if this is all you know, you can know this and you're good. This kind of summarizes all there is to know about the Bible, all there is to know about the gospel, all there is to know about Jesus. Take a second, and I'm not expecting anyone to say anything, but just in your heads, pick a, pick a verse that you know. I imagine, I'll give you guys some time. Take, take some time. But I imagine that for most of us, our first thought, we didn't really have to think about it. I mean, For most of us, our first instinct was, that's easy. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whatever version you have memorized that with. And I was talking about a youth Sabbath school and I feel like that is one of the few verses where every single person knows not only the words to that verse, but you also know where it's found. Like Jesus wept, we all know, but we're like, I'm not really sure where Jesus wept is. And most of us are like, all right, I take it a step further and like, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. But aside from those other two, like John 3.16 is that one verse that for so many of us, it's like that's the verse growing up we were told, you have to know this. It was hammered into our heads during um, children's Sabbath school, during vacation Bible school, during sermons, that if you don't know anything else, you must know that God loved the world. He sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I think part of the reason this is such a popular verse, and this is such a heavily emphasized verse, is that for so many people, we were taught that this verse essentially encompasses the entire gospel message, which in a nutshell is this, that you are a sinner, Jesus loves you, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and if you believe in him, you go to heaven. For the most part, this is the gospel that we've been taught, and for most of us, The reason John 3.16 is so important is like, okay, there's a pretty good fit between John 3.16 and this idea of, yeah, this is what it means to be a Christian, this is what the gospel is. Now, there is nothing inherently incorrect with John 3.16 or this portrayal of the gospel. And while it's not incorrect or wrong, I believe in all of these things, I would argue that this is not a complete portrayal of what the gospel actually is. And the idea is that for this version of the gospel, it's as long as you believe and say with your lips and proclaim publicly through baptism that you believe in Jesus, you're good. You're saved. That's it. End of story. Don't add anything to that. And the problem with that, with this version of the gospel, it doesn't actually say in this version anything about how you live your life, obeying Jesus, being transferred. It doesn't say anything about change at all. It's if you believe, you go to heaven, which is the goal according to this gospel, and then you're good. That's it. And the slippery slope with this version of the gospel is that it creates Christians at times, not for everyone, but if you take it to its extreme, the danger of this version of the gospel is that it creates Christians who just believe and are unchanged in any other aspect of their lives. And I've stated this several times throughout the month that this series, and especially this, this sermon this week, is not so much about what saves you, it's not a message on soteriology and salvation, which is highly uh, theological and nuanced and can be complex. For the purposes of not preaching like heresy, I just want just, to I'm going to read this. I and the Adventist Church believe in the doctrine of justification by faith, which states that you are saved from the long-term eternal consequences of sin by believing in what Jesus did on your behalf on the cross for us, which we could not do. Feel free to quote that. I did say that in this message. But, but, like so many of us have experienced, believing in that truth and publicly being baptized in that truth does not necessarily equate to change in your life. That you can believe in that truth and say you believe in that truth and claim that truth and still live the exact same life you live. Before you knew about it, I feel like when I was growing up, I was told actually that that's not possible. I feel like the implication I was told growing up is no, no, no. Actually, if you believe, eventually you will become like Jesus. That your belief, that your knowledge, your proclamation of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, that will eventually change you to who you become. And I've found in my personal experience and through the conversations I've had in ministry and in life that that's not necessarily true. Where you can be a believer for so many years, decades even, but as far as becoming sanctified, as far as becoming more like Jesus, not necessarily true. It's one thing to believe in Jesus and believe what Jesus did for you. And it's another thing entirely to follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus. Here's, according to some polls, um, I think this was done by the Pew Research Center, I believe this is 2021's data, that 63% of Americans today would self-identify as Christians. That number's been down a lot over the last few decades. 63%, maybe higher than some of you may have thought. And in another poll, they try to determine, again, this is a much more nuanced conversation to have, because it's harder to really gauge spiritual maturity in practice. But This poll puts it at approximately 4% of Christians would consider themselves practicing Christians. So clearly there's this big divide between the idea of believing in Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And the question I think it's worth asking for us here in this room, for myself, is why is there, how is it that there is such a big gap? Because as long as, what I was told growing up is that as long as we believe in Jesus, eventually over time... Jesus would just kind of take over our lives as like a hostile takeover and, and eventually start making drastic changes as long as we believed. But for some of us, we've been waiting for that for a really, really, really long time. And the reality is that I think becoming like Jesus, being transformed into the character of Jesus, is not inevitable. It won't eventually just happen. Happen if we continue to live our lives the same way you do. And another reason I think we place so much emphasis on the word believe is the danger on the opposite end of the spectrum. Where we place a huge emphasis on what Jesus has done for us in this idea of believing in what he did and that alone is because if we go too far away from that and we start adding things to that, then we get onto the opposite end of the spectrum of legalism and become pharisaical and it becomes too much about works. And I admit that's a very important tension. And I don't think anyone understands that that kind of tension between works and doing and believing and trying to put my effort in better than anyone that's preached a sermon before. Not a pastor necessarily, but anyone that's preached a sermon before. When I first started preaching at Andrews and I was a student there, I was so worried about preaching, not heresy, but preaching like my own agenda and message, of just being a motivational speaker that like makes people feel good and laugh, that I was paralyzed with this idea of God, I need you to tell me what to speak about because I don't want to ruin this thing. Like I felt like this whole idea of preaching the pulpit is so sacred that you need to tell me what I need to talk about. And sometimes I didn't have that luxury where like I was assigned a passage or when in the middle of a series, but especially in college, I'm gonna be honest, a lot of times during my internship and my first years at Rock, that was something I really struggled with. And so what would happen a lot of times is that, like, I would be given my, my date. All right, you're speaking in a week and a half, two weeks from now. Just keep heads that heads up. We make our sermon schedule together with other theology majors. And Monday would roll around and be like, all right, God. I sat down at my desk and I would uh, do my devotions and i pray. I'd say, God, you know my heart. Like, I'm not trying to desecrate the pulpit. I don't want to turn this into my own agenda. So you need to tell me what you, wanna, what you want me to say. And the truest words I want when I, when I pray at the beginning of my message, God, let these be your words, not my words. Like, I wanna be able to mean that. I'd pray that on Monday. And then I would also pray that on Tuesday. And then by Wednesday, I'm like, please, God, please. I need something, right? And, and there's this essence of, like, but, but I don't want to, like, meddle. So, God, I, I mean, I have faith, but I don't know if I have, like, Thursday night level faith. This is Wednesday, and I'm like, I need something, please. Because, again, I don't want to, like, you know, just because I heard it in my class doesn't mean that's what you want me to say. I want to be like a prophet. Like, just make me eat a scroll or something, and let me just say those words. Help me to be able to say, like, thus saith the Lord, not like, this is what I learned in Theo 2 yesterday. And my Thursday night, I was like, all right, God, please. Like, Wednesday night, I would pray, and I'm not even joking. This is a legitimate prayer I prayed. God, I feel like I've really been holding out. And, like, the Egyptians are right behind me in the sea, and I'm waiting for the sea to open. So here's what I'm thinking, God. I need a vision tonight. Like, I would love if you would just type up a manuscript, and then I could see it, and then I'll put it in Google Docs. But you put it in my head. And I wake up Thursday morning, I'm like, oh my goodness, God, are you even, do you even want me to preach? And inevitably, what would have happened is that at some point I'd have to pick a topic and, and start cracking open the Bible or brainstorming on a notepad and notebook to come up with something to say. And for so many years, I struggled with this version of like, I, I want to not have my efforts hinder any level of grace or the power of God, and there's this tension, but a lot of times what I would lean towards too much, almost comically so, was this version of Christianity that was extremely passive, like, God, you just do everything, and I will receive and accept, and in a sense, I thought it was a very pure way to be a Christian, but there was a level of, I don't know, laziness of God, I just want you to do all the work of, at a certain point, like, you know, what was I doing on Monday, Tuesday, aside from the prayer? I was like, was I playing League of Legends? Maybe I was playing League of Legends. I don't know. But I think the way so many of us understand the gospel is maybe on a much broader, less extreme level is this idea of a Christian just needs to believe. And a disciple was called to follow, which requires effort. And I realize that it may sound just like semantics, but the reason I'm saying this is so important because that simply believing that 2,000 years ago Jesus died, accepting or acknowledging at one point in your life that that those events happen, is not going to change your life and make you more like Jesus. But for so many of us, the whole idea of becoming a disciple of Jesus, of following Jesus, is seen as extra or going above and beyond, that's extra credit. And actually, the most important thing is just that you believe. And if you believe and say and are dunked in that water, then you're good. There's nothing else. I mean, you can try to follow Jesus if you want, but that's really, like, for some of us, we see that as just, like, that's extra credit. Like, as long as you believe and say you believe and think it and publicly say it, then you're good. Anything on top of that is, like, that's, that's the cherry on top. That's icing on top. Actually following Jesus is not... I mean, it's good, but it's like, you already passed the class. You know what I'm saying? And I think that, and I realize that in saying this, maybe I am towing a lot of lines right now. And the reason I'm saying this, the reason I ventured in this topic, to be honest, is because For being real, last week was supposed to be the end of the series. And you can kind of tell by the way Pastor Chris preached it. I was like, oh, that's a nice way to end the series. But I had this, I've been struggling and and thinking about this idea because of so many discussions and questions that I've been having with people. And looking back on my own life of of how can we have been Christians for so long and have believed for so long yet not change? How can I have been a believer and yet not have become more? like Jesus, and recently I got a book that sheds some light to this concept, that has some more conversations that have shed some light to this concept, and I think a lot of it is because of the idea that many of us have of this, what I will call this incomplete gospel, that this is all that there is, that once you get to the bottom of, if you believe in him, you go to heaven, you've accomplished everything there is to accomplish in Christianity. Anything on top of that, it's like nice to have, but not really necessary, and what this sort of creates, to use someone else's words, is a salvation by minimum entrance requirements, which is interesting because Jesus himself warns, this is on the, uh, his Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus adds his tension, even during this, his most famous teaching. This is the illustration Jesus uses to end the Sermon on the Mount he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Conversely, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into, keyword here being practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat the house and it fell down with the great crash. And I think there's a very important nuanced tension here in Jesus's message as he concludes all these amazing teachings. The reality is grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. The grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning, and that's not just semantics. Jesus' instruction of what it looks like and what it looks like to become a follower of how to become a follower and disciple of Jesus is whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's a much more active command than just raise your hand and say, I believe. And this is the point of the message where I want to say, this is not for me to shame anyone into saying, the point of this message isn't so like, let's all step our game up a little bit or let's all get to a certain level of morality, Not at all, because to be honest, even if it was true that all you had to do was raise your hand and say, I believe, which is really kind of different from most of what Jesus teaches in the Gospels, even if all you had to say, let's say that was true, that you just need to raise your hand and say, I believe, get dunked in some water, and then you're set for life, the problem with living your life like that, of just being a believer and not a follower and disciple of Jesus, is that inevitably, you get stuck in this self-defeating cycle of sin and shame and guilt and confusion and frustration where you believe that Jesus is real and there's power, but because none of that has really translated into your actual life, it all just creates this huge tension and dissonance in your life where you never truly experienced the life God wanted you to experience, and you just believed in this concept in your head, whatever believe really even means for you, And we're never transformed by the love of God into the person that we deeply desire to become. And very often the end result of this, just believing in our head and having no translation into our actual life and following Jesus, is that the frustration builds up and eventually just becomes apathy. Like, I don't care anymore. It's like frustrating and it's like too complicated. And like, yeah, there's this mental barrier in my head where like I believe, but I haven't been changed because I thought all I had to do was believe and God would eventually just take over my life and do all these things. But it hasn't really happened. I haven't really felt that change. And so what many of us maybe ourselves have experienced is just, well, then I'm just going to just go through the motions and maybe I shouldn't expect change at all. And maybe I should just live the life that I live and continue to do the things that I usually do, and and we'll see how it works out in the end. And if you felt that this accurately describes your spiritual life or your relationship with Jesus, and you want to experience change and growth in your life and go from just believing to becoming more like Jesus, this is the instruction that Jesus gives us. In his teaching, he uses the illustration of a vineyard where he says that I am the vine and you are the branches. And the command he gives is abide in me, and I will abide in you. That word abide um, can can be used, uh, translated a few different ways, to remain, to dwell in, to make your home in. And Jesus's point is that if you are as a branch, you abide in me, the vine, he says you will then bear much fruit. That by abiding in Jesus, the result will be fruit in your life. But the fruit is dependent on what it is or who it is, that we abide in. And this can all sound kind of vague and mystical. Like, how do you abide in someone? Like, I'm not a person. I'm not a, I'm not, I'm a person. I'm not a plant. What does that actually look like? And I was reading this book from this passage, and and the point that this author made is that actually every single one of us are abiding already in something. This is what he says. All of us have a source we are rooted in, a kind of default setting that we return to, an emotional home. It's where our minds go when they're not busy with tasks, where our feelings go when we need solace, where our bodies go when we have free time, and where our money goes after we pay the bills by John Mark practicing the way. And in a lot of ways, I feel like if you really thought and and said and thought about it, so much of our life is influenced by the things that we are rooted and abide in. For instance, if you're rooted in the infinite scroll of, of social media, at some point, we talked about the Yun Sabbath School, that will start to have an effect on your life where it'll, not always, but it's prone to create people that are angry and anxious and arrogant and simplistic and distracted, Then when you're rooted in the endless library of your streaming platforms, that eventually will form you into becoming a person that can be prone to lustfulness and restfulness and being bored and never fully present. If we're rooted in the pursuit of hedonism and pleasure, we can become people who are compulsive and addictive and running from our pain and simultaneously running from the very thing that'll heal us. But we know this, there's a multi-billion dollar industry founded on the idea that you and I are heavily influenced by anything that holds our attention and our affection. And in a nutshell, I think that's what it looks like and what it means to abide. To abide in something is to have that thing be the object of your attention and your affection. And whatever it is that we abide in will have a huge influence over our lives. In short, that when we have something be the object of our affection, our attention, we abide. And when we abide in something, in short, in normal English words, that thing that we abide in has enormous influence on our lives today. We talked about the youth status school and I asked them, hey, what is the single biggest influence? Who or what is the single biggest influence in your life? And I asked this to a group of junior high school and high school students, and we got roughly the same answers across the board. And some of it may, may surprise you, some of it may not surprise you. One of the first things that came up was like, my phone, social media, the, the content that we consume. And another one that came up more than once was my parents. Who my parents are has a big role and impact and influences who I am and who I want to become. And the other one that came up often was, was the friends that I'm with, the people that I hang around with have influence in who I am today. When I was in high school, or when I was in college, um, I, I got introduced to this new culture uh, in the Korean American Adventist community of uh, once every semester there were there was a banquet. I think, I think that's the word we used. And, and it would flip for one semester, guys would ask the girls, and the next semester, girls would ask the guys. And I think I was a sophomore in college then. And At this point, I was very gung-ho on like, I'm a theology major. I have ownership over this church, and I'm gonna like make sure this Korean. At the time, the a Korean church, Korean community, and Korean club were all kind of like, meant kind of the same thing, the same groups of people. And we had come into second semester, and first semester this year, they kind of rotated it. First semester, the girls asked the guys. And the girls asked the guys, and they'd, you know, like, you all get in a room, make a list, and the like, people are like, all right, does anyone want to go with anyone? And obviously, everyone's like, no, we don't care. And they're like, okay, why don't you go with, you go with this person? Oh, no, I can't go with them because... And eventually, it took a really long time to hash this all out, loud, but it had to be very systematic because all these girls would try their hardest to make sure that any guy that wanted to go got asked. And so the following semester... I was like, all right, I will take it upon myself to make sure every girl that asks someone is going to get a date to banquet. Nobody asked me to, by the way. I just, all by myself. And it ended up being like, like, not as easy as I thought it was going to be. I was like, dang, this is very, very difficult. A lot of these guys have hanging up to why they can't go with these people. But um, simultaneously as I was doing this, and, and this is like, I don't know. It's, it's embarrassing, but it's very true. There were two shows I was really into at the time One was, like, a political TV show, and the other was, like, a legal TV show. Uh, And both of these had protagonists where I would best describe them as, like, the world's definition of a man's man. Like, both of the protagonists in these series were, like, very, like, powerful, influential. They, like, pulled the strings from behind the curtain. Like, anything they wanted, they got. They were smart. They were, like, good-looking, kind of. And, like, they were, like, very, like you know, like, they did and got whatever they wanted, and they made sure they could get whatever they wanted. It was a very, like, oh, like, power-tripping kind of thing. I don't know I was watching it when I was the I don't know. Looking back, I probably shouldn't watch those. But I was watching those things, and I was, like, really, like, I felt myself, like, oh, like, yeah, this is really cool. Like, these guys are super awesome. Anyways, while that is happening, I come down to the very, like, concluded, like, there's just this one girl that needs it, and once she, once I can lock someone in to ask her, then we're good. And I had two people I could ask. So as long as one of these two guys went to ask this girl, we're good. Mission accomplished. I can pat myself on the back to do this thing that nobody asked me to do. And I I remember I asked, I was going to ask one of these guys and I asked a friend, can you ask this other guy? And as long as one of us can convince these people to go, we're good. And I was asking someone and it fell through. They were like, they're like a freshman. like, I don't want to ask a sophomore. I was like, all right, I get it. And then I remember like, even in just the way I was convincing them, I was like, I felt this, like, no, like, I'm going to convince you, dude. And I started, like, using lines from the TV show, too, which was really weird and cringe. And then I asked, I followed up with my friend. I was like, hey, did you get this person to ask her? And he's like, no, I couldn't. And then for whatever reason, I got so mad at him. I was like, how could you not? Like, oh, my goodness, what is wrong with you? And so I talked to this person myself, and I convinced that person to ask this girl, and I was like, see, and like, as, and like the minute he said yes and he left and as I was walking away, he was like, oh my goodness, like how did you do that? And I said two words to him, which I will not repeat here, but they weren't curse words. They weren't like really, really anything more than just the most belittling thing I've ever said to someone in my life. And I remember it like, yes, I was walking through the gazebo, and he was like, oh, my goodness. And I just muttered these two words loud enough for him to hear under my breath. And the minute I said those two words, which to this day I think are the meanest things I've ever said to someone, I walked back to my dorm, and the minute I got back in my dorm by myself, I just felt this sickness in my stomach of, like, I can't believe I said this. He was, like, a really close friend. He was, like, one of the only other theology majors in my class. So we're, like, you know, we're going to run into each other in, like, an hour or two. And, like, I just felt this really, like, I can't believe I said that. Like, I really can't believe I said that. And I remember I prayed. I was like, God, what is wrong with me? And then in that moment, I was like, you know what? I cannot watch these shows anymore. Because the, the way and the things that I told him were so powerfully influenced by the protagonists of these shows that I admired and kind of looked up to in a sense. And, you know, I, I apologized to him afterwards. I was very, very embarrassed about it. I had to explain that I was watching this show. That I was making me to a worse person. But, but all that to say, I think you and I, we know this to be true. We become the object, or we become like the object of our affection and our attention. That whatever we abide in determines who we will eventually become. Whatever holds our attention, whatever grasps, whatever is the, the object and the, the center of our affection will at some point, inevitably, we know this on a much smaller level, influence us To become who we eventually will be. I mean, that's why companies are willing to spend millions, billions of dollars to pay individuals to just hold our product. Just say you use our product because we know that you are the object of many people's attention and affection. And if you say you like it, many, many people will in turn buy our product. There's a a very close correlation there that we are heavily, heavily shaped and formed by what we spend our attention, and our affection on. And because of this reality, I think there's a question that we really need to ask ourselves. That when it comes to what is this series really about, at the very least, this is the question you must ask yourself. That what if becoming like Jesus wasn't just a means to an end? That for many of us, we view following Jesus as like that's my way to get into heaven. Like, I believe in God, and then I'll, like, attempt if I'll, like, do my Bible, I'll read my prayers. But really, for many of us, the way we view the gospel is, that's my way of, like, Jesus, that's my deposit. Hold my spot in heaven, please. Where in that version of the gospel, our ultimate goal is eventually just where we will eventually end up. But I think in a lot of ways, in the way Jesus teaches the gospel, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what if... Following Jesus is not just a ticket to heaven. It's, just, it's not just a ticket to nice feelings. It's not just a ticket to being successful in an upwardly mobile life. What if becoming like Jesus, following Jesus, is the end of Christianity? What if that is the ultimate goal? That the ultimate goal of Christianity isn't just for you so much to get to heaven, but for God to get heaven into you. And maybe that's what Paul meant when he said that, do you not know that your bodies are temples, of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. That maybe that isn't just a passage about, like, why you shouldn't get a tattoo or get a piercing, but that our lives were supposed to function in the same capacity as the temple and the tabernacle did in the Bible, which was the dwelling place of God. In other words, the temple, who we are, who Jesus says we are for the Holy Spirit, our lives should become a meeting place between heaven and and earth where we can have and experience the kingdom of heaven here and now. And the problem with just believing and never striving to become like Jesus is that at the end of the day, we never really get to experience truly God's love and God's transformative power in our lives. If all we do is hope that eventually something that Jesus never really said would happen, would happen to us. Because what truly changes us is experiencing God's love for us. We've talked about this before. You can only change so much by reading about what happened a long time ago. But to be honest, tell, tell a kid in Sabbath school, hey, did you know Jesus died for you 2,000 years ago? they are like, no, I knew that. Like, it doesn't, you don't, nothing really clicks until you've experienced the love that Jesus poured out 2,000 years ago in your life today. And when you experience that love for yourself, which can happen, which must happen outside the realm of just believing, that will change your life even modern psychologists would agree for this for the most part where in general we are loving to the degree in which we have been loved That for so many of us the way we share and experience love in so many ways is shaped by how we ourselves received love to begin with and in being a disciple of jesus of following jesus's way of life we get to experience his love when we shape our lives and we make the, effort to trans- make the effort to turn our eyes, as we sung earlier, towards Jesus. We're going to share an announcement about this later on before we end, but this past year at camp meeting, I had this, this experience that I generally don't have. And um, At PUC camp meeting, I have the privilege of leading out the junior high school department, which is like the best department at camp meeting by far. And I love it because of like the age that I get to work with, not just with the kids, but like the leaders who are generally like in college and high school. And the hard rule that I set myself at the beginning of the week was: this is for sixth, seventh, and eighth graders—no exceptions. What happens every year inevitably is that people will sneak like fifth graders in, and you know, like, it's—it becomes a problem when like you do it and then you tell your friends and then I have like seven fifth graders like, "Can we join?" We were told we could, so I told the beginning I was like, "No." I told my staff, I told myself, and I told Sydney, who was like, my other co-coordinator. We are not allowing any 5th graders, and if anyone even looks like a 5th grader, we're going like, to look at them, we're going to card them, like, can you see your ID, your birth certificate, and we'll walk them back to Davidian because that's where BBS is. And I held that really strongly because, you know, we've had some issues in the past. That being said... Um, there was one kid that, that approached a little bit later um, in the day, maybe like Monday morning, Monday afternoon, so after the initial registration process. And she came with her mother and, like, I think her younger sister. She's like, hey, her mom did most of the talking. She said, hey, can, are you the person in charge? Said, yeah, nice to meet you. And she's myself. And I looked at the kid, I was like, we am going to walk you over real quick. And she was like, oh, can I, can my daughter join this program? I said, like, oh, well, what grade is your daughter? in?" she said, oh, she's in fifth grade. I was like, oh, yeah, well, no, she can't actually then. I'm going to walk her over. Well, we have a program for your daughter. It's not this one. It's the one over there. I'm happy to walk her, walk you or we get someone to walk you guys over if you don't know where that is. And she's like, oh, no, like, we know it's 68, but we were really hoping that, like, you know, she, like, she has friends in here. And she was like, you know, the same general spiel. Like, she has friends in here and, like, you know, she's a little bit old to be doing the arts and crafts. I was like, no, I understand, but they work really hard over there to make an amazing program. I think she'll have a good time. And then we kind of went back and forth a little bit. And, she, and the mom was kind of like, no, I would really like if my daughter could be I ended up telling them about like, you know, what they're going through and stuff. And I was like, I totally understand. I don't think I said this. I hope I did I don't know if I said, like, I don't make the rules because I do make the rules. But I was like, oh, but like, I'm, I, we were doing no exceptions this year. And she's like, you know, they both look very, very sad about it. And I felt really bad. And then they walked away. And then I, th- I think the person thing was like, dang, that's kind of harsh. I was like, well, we turned away like four other people. How can we, you know, that's not fair to them. The whole spiel made myself feel, but it's not fair to them. And then as I was doing it, I just could not get this nudge out of my heart where like God was like, well, actually, after that happened, I felt so weird about it that I said a quick word like, God, I don't know if I made that right call because I feel pretty terrible about that right now. And as I was praying, just in the very corner, I just felt God was like, you, you should go talk to them. I was like, oh, that's very embarrassing because I already told them no and I have to really put my foot down. Then I look like a pushover and then all of my staff saw me do I look like a pushover. Then what's the point of having rules? But I prayed and I could not shake that feeling and I just like felt like, oh, if I don't do something about this in this moment now, it's gonna leave. And so I ran out of the chapel. Because at this point, I don't know how far they've gone. It's been about a minute or two. And I saw them sitting at like the fountain um, in front of pollen. and I ran after them, which I'm sure freaked them out. And I said, hey, I'm like out of breath at this point. I said, hey, Okay, few questions first, and I was like, hey, can you, and basically I'm grilling the kid and trying to, like, hyper up, like, are you promising me that you're going to be on your best behavior, you'll listen to the teachers, like, this is, like, big, this is, can you handle being in junior high, basically, like, are you going to, are you going to, like, participate in discussions, are you going to be good, say, yeah, 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 and I told the mom, I was like, all right, sorry, I know I said what I said, but I think I'd be fine if she joined us. And she's super excited. I'm walking her back. You cannot tell anyone that you're in fifth grade. Like, I'll, tell you, I'll tell your leaders, but don't tell your friends. Like, don't, you know. And we walked her back, and that was it. I put her in a group, and I pretty much didn't talk to her or see her for the rest of the week. And at the end of the week, um, there was this moment. We call it after where after, during our Friday night vespers, after the message and after praise, we allow the kids to come up. And we give them a mic and say, how have you seen God this week? Have you experienced God's love this week? And this girl came up. And this girl came up, and she shared about how very she did a really good job she did not mention how she was in fifth grade how he snuck her in she didn't say any of that but she basically said how she really needed this week now during this week she felt like she really got to experience god's love and she really felt like this was something that she was not looking forward to because she didn't know about but she was like so 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 glad that she came and as i was hearing her say this i want to make it clear i did not feel like oh that was me because to be honest i did not talk to this girl once after i let her in And I left her in the hands of of her small group leaders. But what I experienced in that moment was I am so glad I brought this girl, I allowed this girl to come into this group. Not because I ended up teaching her anything about God, but because in doing so, what I got to experience was God using me to help show someone else his love. And that feeling that I have of this is a moment where I got to experience God's love to this person but I got to play a small part in showing this person that love, that I feel like that is the experience, that is the feeling, that knowledge, when you truly feel like I see God's love working, I experience it, it comes out of the pages of my, the Bible and of our mind, that is what transforms us into becoming more like Jesus. The problem is it's hard for us to ever experience that if that version of that life of following Jesus, of doing the things that Jesus did, putting in the efforts to frame and turn our, and make our life influenced and centered around Jesus, if we don't make those efforts and those decisions, you may never experience that by just believing in Jesus. And it's experiencing that love that's exactly what changes us. There is so much, this is the quote of John Mark Comer, there's so much we can't do in our walk with Jesus. We can't fix or fix or heal or transform ourselves. But we can do this. We can be with Jesus. We can pause in little moments throughout our days and turn our hearts toward Jesus in silent prayer and love. We can do this if we are willing to practice. And our part in practicing the presence of God, of turning our eyes toward Jesus, is to do exactly that, to make Jesus an object of our affection, our attention, which requires anyone that's done done this before you know making jesus the center and the object of our affection of our attention of truly making jesus the center of our lives turning your eyes towards jesus requires effort it requires you to make that call on tuesday night or monday night i'm really tired i don't want to go to small groups right and dragging your body out of your house or like cleaning up your house to host small groups requires effort But in that way, that every time we put in that effort to turn again, once again, towards Jesus, to put Jesus back in our lives and in our lives is another avenue, another window Jesus has to change and transform you into becoming more like him and allowing you to experience the love of Jesus in your life, not just read about it and theorize about it in your head. And so the question we need to ask ourselves today as followers of Jesus is simply this. It's going to be easy to say, just spend more time with Jesus, read your Bible more often. But a more important question, I think, is this. What is the object of my affection and attention? Because it may not be Jesus. But I think if we spend some time in intentionality and in effort and really in, in this idea of reflection, we'll be able to find out. Another way of asking this question is, who or what has the biggest influence in your life? Because once you identify that, you then identify who you will eventually become. And what Jesus is asking is, make this me. What being a disciple looks like is this, your answer to this question must be me. But to make Jesus the answer to this question, the reality is, it's going to take more than just, I believe he died for me. It's going to take effort. It's gonna take rearranging our lives, saying no to certain things so that we can say yes to certain things, so that in our lives we can be shaped around making Jesus the center of our attention and our affection. That's not what makes God, that's not what saves you necessarily. That's not also necessarily what makes God love you more or less. It's a dangerous place to go, and that is legalism. But if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to have our lives changed by experiencing the love of Jesus, we have to be able to say yes to the question of Jesus is the center of our affection and attention. And when we do that, we get to truly experience the life that Jesus lived, truly experience the fruit of the Spirit in our lives with intentionally allowing ourselves to be transformed by the love of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And our lives can become a meeting place between heaven and earth, where our lives are truly the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, and we can influence the people around us in showing them this, this is what it's like to live as a member of the kingdom of heaven here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you that in all these things that you are God of mercy and of grace, Lord, and that in all these things of what it means and looks like to follow you, that when we inevitably fall short Lord, you are a God that's full of mercy and grace and love, and you are the Father that looks down the road. You are the Father that runs after uh, the lost sheep in the 99, Lord. We thank you for the promise that we can make this striving towards you, allowing ourselves to be transformed by you, because you are a God that is running after us and that is right by our corner whenever we fall, Lord. You are a God that welcomes us back with open arms. Father, Lord, I ask that during this time and as we go from this place, that these words can manifest in our lives and we can make an intentional effort of getting you outside of just a theory or a belief in a past event that happened and a hope for a future event, but that you can affect and change our lives right now, here, and in the present, Lord. That as we turn our eyes towards you, that everything else in our lives and in the world will grow dim in the light of your glory, your love, and your grace. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.